Take your Bibles this morning. Turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 4. And I, while you're turning, I'll give you an announcement that I totally forgot about. Um, we are uh, in the midst of our Georgia Barnett, and so we are taking up our offerings. And so our children will be in the back with bright red buckets uh, that you can, don't, that you can uh, give to the Georgia Barnett. And so um, there will also be, what's the date on the lunch? The 7th, October 7th, 2nd. Uh, we're going to do our in-gathering on October 2nd. We're going to do it a little different. We're going to have a lunch in the back of all kinds of wonderful Louisiana food, and you'll be able to give, but please give. And, uh, and so our children will be in the back and make plans for the 2nd to be with us on that day. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. We will conclude this morning our mini-series on the temptations of Jesus is part four of what I've entitled the wilderness temptations. After Jesus' baptism, if you remember several weeks ago, he was led into the desert, the wilderness, by the Holy Spirit, where he would fast for 40 days and endure without failure the temptations of Satan himself. It is the reason that we sing these songs is because Jesus never sinned. But in the midst of the wilderness, in those 40 days, he was tempted not just three times, but he was tempted the entire time that he was there, 40 days. But he had been tempted since, he, since the time of his childhood, all the way up to the cross. Christ never sinned. And because of his victory over temptation, he validates himself as the perfect son of God who can save us, the sinner, from the wrath of God. And he offers to us here in this wilderness a... A, a model, as we said, maybe not a model, maybe a battle plan of fighting our temptation. He, him, he is our battle plan. He is the one that we run to. It is his victory that gives us victory over temptation. And so Luke has provided for us in these last several verses. Matter of fact, we can even go back to chapter 3 where he provided the credentials of Jesus, of his messiahship with his baptism and his genealogy. And then the wilderness becomes the proving grounds, the testing grounds. Is he really the Messiah? Is he able, capable of overcoming that which Adam could not? And what we find is, is that he is. In the first temptation, Satan tried persuading Jesus to distrust the provision of God by turning stone into bread. In the second temptation, he tried to convince Jesus to distrust the plan of God by receiving authority over the world's kingdoms if he would bow to Satan. Each one of these were subtle and deceptive. As I showed you, they were temptations that many of us would not only have probably fallen into, but we would have agreed with Satan. We may have, would have joined with Satan because he made it sound like it was the right Christian thing to do. Yet I believe that the third temptation will demonstrate to us that it is the most subtle and most deceptive of all three. And I have a feeling that all of us this morning will find that we ourselves have fallen prey to this temptation. I want you to see this morning that Satan is tempting Jesus to sin by distrusting God's protection through the reckless disobedience to the, of the will of God. All in the name of faith. I'll say that again. Satan is tempting Jesus to sin by distrusting God's protection through reckless disobedience of the will of God. 
all in the name of faith. Our text this morning will warn us of the careless and impulsive actions that we as believers take all in the name of God. But it will also demonstrate that many times our actions are really not faith. They are actually, in fact, unbelief and doubt. And so I want you to go with me again in this last temptation. And I want us to follow the same outline that we did with the, the last two. We're going to look at the devil's temptation, the potential sin, and then thirdly, the Messiah's response. The devil's temptation, the potential sin, and the Messiah's response. So let's begin here in verse 1 of chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then now our third temptation. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord God, put the Lord your God to test. And the devil had finished every temptation. He left him until an opportune time. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. I want you to notice first the devil's temptation. We were the last two. Satan, after the last two, now Satan takes Jesus to Jerusalem. He takes him not only to Jerusalem, but he takes him to a very important site, which is the temple. And he takes him to the pinnacle, the very highest point of the temple, which is which. Scholars believe to be around 450 feet high. Now why? Why this setting? Why would Satan go to Jerusalem, go to the temple right there and ask him to do something so silly, so just ignorant to jump, right? I I mean, for you, for me, this would not be a temptation. Just jump and and God God's going to pay. This wouldn't be a temptation for us because we're a human. But but for Christ, you know, He's the Son of God. He is He is God, and He's He's man. And so here He has come to save us. And He has come, as we said, He's relying not on His own deity, but He's relying on the on the power of the Holy Spirit to lead Him and to guide Him and protect Him. And so so for you and I, this may not be a huge temptation, but but as you'll see in a moment, this is one for Him. But why? the temple why Jerusalem and I think one of the reasons is I assume would be that because the temple is a symbol of the faith of God's people in this time so this temptation is surrounded or 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 centered around faith you need to express your faith and so Satan brings him to the temple the very symbol of faith in hopes of enticing and appealing to Jesus to express his own faith But I would also think that he does this because to give Jesus an audience. 
up until this point, it's just been Satan and Jesus. But now, if he was to jump, there would have probably been many people who would have seen him jump. And they would have witnessed that this man did not die because this was suicidal. This was, a, this was certainly a, a, death, a, a death penalty here. If he would have jumped, you're going to die. But Christ would, God would probably have done exactly as Satan said, would have protected him. And so people would have then noticed this great sign, this great miracle. And they would have known from the very moment that this is the Messiah, which would have stirred their hearts and stirred the nation of Israel. But I want you to notice the temptation. Notice that it says if, and as we saw last uh, a few weeks ago, that really this translates into sense. Satan does not doubt that this is the Son of God. He knows who he is. So Satan says, since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. And we need to stop there for just a moment. For it is written. And he, he even quotes the passage. He says, he says, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that they, you will not strike your foot against a stone. What is he quoting here? He says it is written. He's quoting scripture. He's quoting the own words of God. Well, this is Psalms 91. It is a psalm that speaks of the safety and the security of the believer, of the the person who takes refuge in God. God is their refuge. God is their strength. Their faith is in him and, and they look to him to protect them. And so here we find a promise for the faithful one. That God will protect his people. And not only protect them, but notice how he protects them. He will protect them with the protection of angels. If they faithfully follow his will. Beloved, this is a great promise. This is a wonderful promise of God that he is with us and he is, he is watching over us. And he is, he is providing for us and protecting us and caring for us. This is a great promise of scripture. But notice the deceit. If you remember the last two times, Satan was thwarted by Jesus using the Scripture. But now Satan himself says, well, if you can do it, so can I. He uses God's own words, God's own promises against Jesus as a weapon of temptation. I mean, certainly this never happens, right? Certainly no one ever truly uses the word of God in malicious ways and deceitful ways. But we find that Satan is doing this as if he is saying to Jesus. Since you are so committed to obeying the scriptures. Since you are so concerned of disobeying them, I've got one for you. Because God has promised here in Psalms 91 to protect you. Why don't you obey and jump? And put God to the test. Let God protect you. Obey the scripture and see if he will watch over you. Since you are so committed to trusting in God your Father. For your provision. For the plan of your life. Trust him now. Trust him now with your, with your, with your protection and jump. And you have to understand in every one of these. I haven't brought this up. But you need to know that in every one of these temptations. Satan is persu- trying to persuade Christ. But every one he tells to do it a command. Turn the stone into bread. Bow down to me and now jump. You can imagine the, the anxiety. You can imagine the adrenaline there on the very point. The very, the very tip top of the symbol of their faith. Quoting the scriptures of God's protection and saying, you are the son of God. If anyone God was going to protect, it would be you. Jump! 
Jump and let everyone see. Jump and and prove to them that God is real and God's promises are true. Prove your faithfulness to your father. Prove you are a good son. And prove that he is a good father who keeps his word. Dear beloved, I can see many believers today joining Satan in this chant. Matter of fact, I believe it happens every Sunday when you turn on the television and you see the many televangelists who are twisting the scriptures. Many modern day Christians joining Satan and saying, put God to the test. Let God prove to you his promises. I mean, if you think about it, it really sounds rather good. If Jesus would have followed through, if Jesus would have jumped in that moment and he was protected, then his, then his Messiahship would have been proven, demonstrating not only his faith, but the faith of all people who follow God and proving that God is faithful. Because we live in a world today that questions God. You can imagine the crowd that he would have quickly gathered hundreds if not thousands of people who would want to follow him. Wouldn't you want to accomplish this? Wouldn't you want to demonstrate great faith and make God happy and bring many people to follow, many people to come into church by your actions of faithfulness? But this is the reason why this temptation is so subtle and deceptive because many of us probably may have just said yes. You see, Satan uses the scriptures. He uses faith. He uses good results, such as evangelism and the people following, all in attempt to cause Christ to sin. Dear friends, you must be careful of those who misquote and misapply the word of God. You must be careful of those who, who are reckless with their faith, for it happens all the time. And it happened in the Scriptures. Did the Pharisees not twist the Scriptures on their behalf? Did they not twist the Scriptures to make the cup on the outside look really clean, but Jesus said, but on the inside it's dirty? Did Satan in the garden not twist the words of God to make Eve and Adam, to lure Eve and Adam to eat of the fruit? Did the Jews in Paul's day not take the scriptures in, in context, you know, out of the context of the gospel, out of the context of Christ, and twist those scriptures, twist the law of God, and tell the Gentiles that in order to be saved and go to heaven, they had to be circumcised? Oh, beloved, I offer you the same warning that the Apostle Paul offered to the Corinthians, that you must beware of false teachers. That you must beware of men and and women and people who would take the Scriptures and misquote the Scriptures and misapply the Scriptures. For men, for Paul says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan, notice this, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. It is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Servants of faithfulness. Servants of great faithful works and deeds, right? Faithfulness. They use the scriptures. And what's interesting is Jesus says that you are not to test God. But what is interesting is that God, through the inspiration of his Holy Spirit, he tells 
the Apostle John in 1 John 4, 1 to write this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out in the world. You see, you need to know something. When people come to you using one to two verses or three verses, you need to know that there are those out there who twist those verses for your destruction. You cannot believe and base your worldview off of one verse taken out of context. Amen? You need to embrace this. You cannot have a worldview based on one verse or two verses. You must not be quick and impulsive to act. You must not be impulsive in your actions and in your beliefs to base everything off of just a couple of verses that someone gives you. And we do this all the time. And what's amazing is we do this with not even verses, with things that are not even Scripture. You must search the Scriptures to know the truth of what God is saying. You must compare the Scriptures. You must must take the Scriptures and you must cross-reference the Scriptures. You must compare the teachings with other solid Bible teachers to see if what people are saying is consistent with all of the Scriptures because they will never contradict one another. But may I say something to you as well, church? You need to stop misquoting and misapplying the Scriptures. Because it happens. And I'm not just pointing you out. Peter did it himself. You are the Messiah. Okay, thank you, Peter, you got it. I'm about to go and die. Let me pull you aside, Jesus. Let me tell you what the Bible says. And what did Jesus say to Peter? Get thee behind me, Satan. That was another one of those opportune times, by the way, in verse 13. Dear friends, we ourselves misquote and misapply the scriptures and it is an act of satan himself who does that we have to be very careful in how we quote scripture and how we base everything off of one verse that is taken out of context this is exactly what satan was doing he took an entire he took he took a few verses out of a psalms 91 and he began to twist it to his own deceitful ways for his own deceitful purposes dear friends We must be careful of those who do it and call them to repentance. And we ourselves must repent and turn away from misquoting and misapplying the scriptures. Because in doing that, we serve Satan, not our Father, God. Be on guard. Satan seeks to trick. He He seeks to lead us astray. But how? What is the potential sin now? What is the potential sin that Satan is leading Jesus to do or warning Jesus to do? What is he luring him Well, remember that I said that Satan is tempting Jesus to sin by distrusting God's protection through reckless disobedience. Now, I want you to look there in verses 9 and 11 again. Because we we see here in verses 9 and 11, notice that he tells them he will command his angels concerning, there in verse 10, concerning you to guard you on your hands, they will bear you up, on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And so we must ask ourselves a question, was Satan telling the truth? I think he was. There's a, there is a thing here. There is some belief that maybe Jesus who sinned in doing this, he would have committed a sin. And so therefore he would have been, you know, breaking the will of God. And some say he could have, in, that, in the sin itself, that when he failed, they may not have protected him. 
He may have died. I, I don't know. I think that's a lot of some assuming of things. But here's what I do know. I do know that Jesus himself said there, he, when he was arrested in the garden in John chapter 18 that Jesus said, Do you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? I mean, Jesus himself says, All I have to do is call on my father and he will come and he will protect me. And so I believe that God would have done exactly as Psalm 91 says. So what is the problem here? Well, to understand the potential sin, you have to look at verse 12. Jesus answered and he said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You see, Jesus' response is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. So I love this. So there he is. He says, You're going to quote Psalm 91 to me. Let me quote Deuteronomy 6, 16 to you. But that's only a reference to another passage of Scripture. Because Deuteronomy 6.16 is is referring to Exodus 17 verses 1 through 7. I don't have time to read that this morning, but let me just sum it up for you. That when Israel was journeying through the wilderness, in the very desert that Jesus is in, they they camped at a place where there was no water. They became fearful. They were worried they would die of thirst. They doubted God's provision, His plan, His protection of their life. And so in their eyes, God was not meeting their expectations that He had told them while they were in Egypt. And so they believed that they were going to die, and so therefore they quarreled with Moses, threatened to kill him, and then considered returning to Egypt, where they would turn themselves over to to be slaves again and drink the water of Egypt, unless God would bring them water. So they demanded. They demanded God prove himself. God, you give us water because you said you would. This was a test. That's what a test is, isn't it? A test is to prove something. It is, uh, you, you take a test that you may prove that you have the information. You know the information. In the case of the Israelites, they wanted to, God to prove himself that his promises were real, that he would take care of them, protect them. In the case of Jesus in the wilderness, Satan was luring him to force God to prove his promise in Psalms 91. I'm going to put God on the test, and you are going to show me that Psalms 91 is correct. Why is this sinfulness? Why does the Bible Bible not say, or or does the Bible not say, and whatever you ask in prayer you will receive by faith, or 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight? I mean, mean, if Jesus has has faith, then wouldn't the right thing to be to do to jump and prove his faith to us? If you have faith, isn't it for you to go do something that's really crazy, really out there, put yourself on the line so that you can prove to the whole world that you are a son or a daughter of God? Love, here's the sin. By following the command of Satan, Christ would have been doubting God's promise of protection. Disobeying the will of God because first it is a sin to doubt. When do you put something to to a test? Is it when you have the full assurance of something? Or when you doubt something? I'm going to tell you that it's when you doubt, because I remember Talitha Watley, my religion professor, who I would go to her every time a test would come, and I would look at her, and I would say, Talitha, Dr. Watley, I know the answers. I don't really need to take this test. Sometimes we would actually be able to convince her almost there to where we did at least convince her one time to give us a verbal test instead of a written. But I would promise, I'd be like, Dr. Wally, you don't understand. I, I, I know this. 
And then she would proceed to call me a bozo and make me do what? Take the test to show that I knew the information. If you're doing electrical work and you're wondering if the wire, you begin to wonder, is that wire hot? A man or a woman of full insurance would do what? Scrab the wire. But you have some doubt in your mind, don't you? So what do you do? Some of you cut into it anyways, but that's a whole other sermon. You, you test the wire. Beloved, we test because we don't have full assurance. For Jesus to have jumped would have meant that he doubted God and he found it necessary that God needed to prove himself. This would have been unbelief. Because the person is forcing God, the God of heaven, the God of universe, who has been faithful in his word from the very beginning, to give us something more than his word that we may believe in him. You need to do something so I will believe in you. You need to prove yourself to me so that I will give you my faith. Beloved, we put God to the test all the time when we choose not to believe his word and we make him a genie when we begin to try to wield his power to meet our expectations. God must act on my behalf if I am going to worship him. It's like a child who looks to the parent and says, if you really love me, you'll buy me that toy. Does the child truly doubt the love of the parent or does the child truly want to wield the power of the parent? God, I'll serve you if you heal my wife. God, I'll worship you if you heal my my grandmother, my grandfather. God, I will give you my life and be faithful unto you if you prove yourself in this. Don't let them die. God, if you make my marriage better, if you make my spouse a better man, a better woman, then I'll be a better spouse. Make him a Christian man and then I will be a Christian spouse. God, if you just take away my stress and the business of my life and Well, then, God, I'll come to church more. God, if you will give me a raise at work and bring in more money to my family, then I'll give more to the church. By the way, there's only one appropriate test in the Bible. You know what it is? You are only told one time when you are to put God to the test. Tithing. That's where God says, test me. We act as though God is a genie. That we could bargain with God and act impulsively and recklessly with the Lord and creator of the world. You prove yourself to me, then I will do A or B. And if that isn't enough for us, dear friends, we begin to ask God to give us signs. Oh God, give me a sign. Oh God, there's a decision I have to make and so I need you to give me a sign. Uh, God, I, I need you to show me in the clouds. I need, to, I need a song to come on the radio, God. I, 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 need, I need so-and-so to say something to me, God, so that I'll know what I need to do. Is the Word of God not enough? That you can make wise decisions? 
that you could weigh the pros and the cons and, and follow that which is right? We do this even with people. We act as though we, we see signs around. We think people are present with us, and that encourages us. People who have passed on from this life to the next. And we see that's a sign. They're with us. I can, I can have joy and peace. As though the Bible didn't say that you can have joy and peace in the presence of God. Right? I'll go to church where there are signs. Oh God, if that church is moving and there's, there's some sensational signs at that church, it feels good. And, and man, there's happening. I mean, okay, they don't preach the word like at this other church. That, and maybe their music is not as biblical as other church. And maybe they don't have people who disciple. But there are signs. I'll go. And that's where I'll worship because it's, it's sensational. It makes me feel good. You are putting God to the test because this is not good enough. This is not good enough. You need a bumper sticker to help you figure out what you need to do next versus the infallible Word of God. This is exactly what Satan was doing. And we think it's faith. I remember a man in my church coming to me. I saw a bumper sticker and, I, and it helped me make a decision. And it was faith. Versus, I'm going to just trust God and make a decision. This is exactly what Satan was doing. And many of you, you look to signs and you test God as though he is a genie. Matthew 24, 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. To long for visible signs and to bargain with God is not evidence of faith, but of heresy. To doubt, it is doubt and unbelief. It is not faith. Because you are not trusting in the very word of God for it is enough. But it is not only that, dear friends, it is also disobedience. Because it would have been suicidal for Christ to jump from that high point. But it would have been done in the name of faith. Sadly, many sins are committed today in the name of faith, in the name of God. Divorce, murder, lying, stealing. We leave the church we do horrible things, sinful things, all in the name of God. We marry unbelievers and we think God will bless us. Though his word says don't do it. We have Christians who live in sexual sin. Outside of marriage, living in sexual sins. And we believe that, that God is going to bless us. We have, we have Christian parents who do not raise their kids in the admonition of the Lord. And we are surprised that God did not bless them. Instead, we're surprised that the, the consequences of their behavior comes back on them. We carelessly jump from job to job and commitment to commitment, believing that God is just going to care for us when we ourselves have not committed to the very command of work. We misapply and we misquote the scriptures to suit our own purposes. We become pragmatic in our churches and we baptize unbelievers. 
Allowing unbelievers to join the church. Put unqualified men in positions of leadership. And we all think it's going to be okay. Because he's God. And if I make a mistake, he's God. He'll take care of it. He'll bless it no matter what. When all alone the word of God tells you how to live, how to trust. FBC, this is testing the God of the universe. And it is not an expression of faith. The expression of faith is living by this word. Even when it seems odd and uncomfortable. And so this morning, if you have, are one who has tested God, call upon God to forgive you and to turn away this morning from looking to signs and treating him like a genie, from disobeying the will of God. Turn away from those things and trust in the promises of God. Trust in Psalms 91 without having to do a swan dive. Notice the response, because I think this is rather important. Notice the response of the Messiah. Notice what Jesus says. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So here is our answer on how we are to live. If this is sin, if this is, if this is not faithfulness, living by these signs and these miracles and these, these, these wonders, and, if it's in, and bargaining with God, if this is not faithfulness, then what is faithful and what does it look like? Well, the first thing that I want you to see is, is that Jesus kept the Scriptures in its context. He allowed Scripture to interpret Scripture. He didn't just listen to the one thing that Satan said that he had twisted to his own purposes. Jesus was like, whoa, whoa, wait up. He says, we got to go all the way back to Exodus chapter 17. We need to test this. Satan pulls a couple verses out of context. And Jesus puts them right back into the context in all of the scriptures. He used scripture to interpret scripture. Many of you need to learn that. If it contradicts somewhere else, it is not right. Something is wrong. Something is wrong. Many times we approach the scriptures like Satan approaches the scriptures. What does this verse mean to me? How does... how? How can this verse right here, how can I, what does this verse mean? I, what do I think that means? That's what Satan did with Psalms 91. But Jesus corrects him and says, no, no, no. What you need to be asking is, is what did God mean when that verse was written? What did God mean when that verse was written? Because I'm going to tell you right now, Satan, it doesn't mean what you're saying it means. Because Deuteronomy tells me, Exodus tells me opposite. This is the message and the application that, that, that God, this is how we get the application from the scriptures. Is we have to first figure out what God meant. And so he corrects Satan and saying, what you're telling me is not correct. And he puts it back in the context of scripture. Beloved, you cannot base your entire worldview, your behavior, your life decisions on a handful of verses that you have taken out of context. Put them in context by reading all of the scriptures in its entirety. Read the Old Testament and the New Testament come together. You, many of you are on your yearly plan. Amazing. Read it in its entirety and allow the Old, Old Testament to interpret New Testament and New Testament to interpret Old Testament. Allow them to be commentaries on each other. They will never contradict one another. 
They will never teach you anything opposite. Cross-reference these. Keep, keep the verses in context. When you read a verse, read ten verses that come before it and the ten verses that come after it. Put it in the context of which it was placed in. And you must do it, dear friends, with a heart that desires for God's purposes to be made known, not yours. You see, Satan had a purpose in what he wanted. And he wielded that verse. We wielded Psalms 91 like his own sword for his own purposes. And Jesus had to, he, he had to put, make it right. We must seek the purpose of God. People do so much damage by taking the verses out of context. But secondly, Jesus trusted in Psalms 91. You say, well, he didn't jump. I mean, if he truly trusted, wouldn't he have jumped? Jesus trusted in Psalms 91 without acting presumptuously. Jesus believes that God will protect him without forcing God to protect him. He does not need God to prove himself to him because God has already done that over and over and over again. So what does Jesus do? Satan says, let me quote Psalms 91 to you. Why don't you prove yourself? Now jump, jump, Jesus, because I don't have to jump. I know that verse is true. How did he know? How did he, how did he express his faith? He waited He patiently waited for God to protect him. He endured suffering and trials. He he endured all that. Jesus did nothing and waited for God to show his faithfulness. And guess what? Luke doesn't give this to you. But Mark does. Listen to Mark in chapter 1 verse 13. That When the temptations are over, listen to what happened. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals... And the angels of God were ministering to him. As though God just had to stick his tongue out at Satan and say, Brother, I don't need you to tell me what to do. I will minister to my people when I am ready to minister to. I will minister to them as I have told them. You don't command me. And so Jesus, who says, I trust in Psalms 91, and I trust in God when and where he wants to minister me that way. And when Satan is gone, guess who comes to minister to the Son of God, but the angels that God tells about in Psalms 91. Amen? How awesome is that? And he didn't have to jump. He didn't have to do anything flashy. He didn't have to test God and back God into a corner. He simply recognized you are the God of the universe and your word is final. That when you say it, it is thus saith the Lord and nothing else. No one's going to change that. And I must believe that. And so he waited and he trusted and the angels came. Dear friends, you may not ever experience the angels coming to you and, and ministering to you because you're too reckless and too presumptuous on God. Because you're too busy looking for signs rather than just waiting on the word of God that tells you, wait and I will be there. You chose a bumper sticker. You chose a song. Rather than the Holy Spirit or the angels that you could not see who would come and minister to your heart and soul. Trust Him. Trust this book. 
This book is the book of life. It is the book of how we are to live by faith. If you want to be faithful, dear friends, it is this book by which we live. It is this book that God has given you with promise after promise after promise. And you can trust it. It will help you in your financial life. It will help you in your adversity. It will help you in your family. It will help you with your job. It will help us in our church. FBC true faith is hardly ever flashy. It doesn't always jump. It goes unnoticed. No one gets to see the great things that God is doing in your life. It goes unappreciated by the world. Matter of fact, you'll probably be scorned for not jumping by the American Christianity. True faith in God is simply reading and trusting and living by what it says. Doing what the book says. Taking God at his word. Not demanding proofs or signs. Not living wildly in the name of faith. And you want to know why? Do you want to know why you don't have to ask God to prove himself to you? Because he already has. The greatest evidence of my faith is not jumping from 450 feet. It is in Jesus Christ who left heaven, who came to earth, born of a virgin. The perfect lamb of God who lived 33 years on this earth and never sinned, not once, never sinned in thought, in word, in action, in deed. He never sinned. And there the perfect Son of God laid His life down on Calvary for my sins and your sins. And there He died on my behalf. And when all we thought was lost, three days later, He rose from the grave in all victory, in all power, giving me the promise that those who would repent of their sins and believe upon him would be saved. Dear friends, I'm here to tell you that is the greatest proof and evidence of my faith. It is Jesus Christ. And this book is the story of it. And so therefore, dear friends, I can believe that. And if you are lost today and you do not know Christ here, I'm here to tell you his promises are real for you. Repent of your sins. Come to Jesus Christ this morning. Repent and call out to him and he will save you. He will save you, and he will save you today because he promised it. You don't need a sign. You don't need a bumper sticker. You don't need a bargain with God. You simply need to trust and believe and come to Jesus Christ today. And to the church, I say to you, brothers and sisters, we don't need the mystical mystical things of this world. What we have is the supernatural power of Christ's word. The promises of God. If you would, as we prepare to close this morning, I would challenge you this morning. Be watchful of the one who disguises himself as an angel of light. He comes to twist the scriptures. I would warn you not to twist the scriptures yourself. I would call on you this morning to overcome and to quit the sin of putting God to the test. Repent of that this morning. And live by faith in the scriptures. As I said, for those who may be lost, trust in the promises of God's salvation by putting your faith 
putting your faith in the Word of God. For in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word knew God. The Word was God. And the Word became what? Flesh. Put your faith in the Word of God this morning. Let's pray.